Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm Anthony. This week I cover Jon Snow's first POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. With me to cover that chapter is Andrew Howe. Andrew is a historian who often uses television and film in his classroom at La Sierra University. He has taught classes on Game of Thrones. Then I include a clip of my conversation with my friend Melanie, who loves to send me nasty emails from time to time, which I happen to enjoy. So I invited Melanie on because she has challenged my three rules of dragon magic, and I wanted to give her a platform to do that because I think she makes some good points. If you too want to send me nasty emails, send those to book at baldmove.com. If you have nice things to say, of course, leave a review on iTunes. Finally, a quick word of apology. My audio in the interview with Andrew is not great. I did something wrong. I'm not sure what I did wrong, but I apologize for the poor audio for that. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Andrew Howe. I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about the new Jon Snow prequel that's on the way. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any feelings about this? Are you would, are you looking forward to? The, I, I was a huge Game of Thrones fan as as the show, right? And I almost feel like I want a little bit more, but then again, there's always that that concern that if they make a sequel of one of your favorite things, then it will in some way taint the original experience. Do you have any feelings about this? Uh, yeah, I, I was concerned when I heard it. Uh, you know, I, uh, yeah, I'm sure there, I, I like the, I, I also, it's a big, I'm a big fan of the books. I'm a big fan of the, the show, the show. Uh, it was one of my favorite characters. I really enjoyed him as a character. Um, I think there are some really interesting things that directions they could go with this character, but I, I, I thought maybe Arya, you know, above and beyond uh, the, you know, I, I think this is a storyline. Is it going to be just set north of the wall and on the wall? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it could also get very claustrophobic very quickly. And if they don't <laughs> do it right, I worry about, uh, you know, what impact it would have on my love of this character. I don't know, um, man. I think that Westeros is the claustrophobic realm. You're up in the mm-hmm. wild and wide north. I mean, all kinds of monstrous happenings could occur up there. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I, I, I love the, the the large canvas of of Game of Thrones, and that's why I almost think Arya's story is one that that uh, you know could be uh, um, nicely tra- uh, translated to a new show. I would love to uh, see Arya. Here's if all right. So put me in charge of the show, and mm-hmm. here's what I'll do with it. 
I'm going to bring Arya back. And um, with her comes all of the Lovecraftian imagery mm. that Martin has occupying the margins of his universe. And so the real baddie is not the White Walkers, not the others. It's the the overlords from the deep. <laughs> the deep ones, yeah. And particularly since her, you know, she's going off to be a sailor, basically. Yes. Explorer, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, an explorer. So you could you you could uh, play with that motif, but you know, I mean, I I think with 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 Arya, you could very easily have a a sort of like a you know the Seven Voyages of Sinbad, you know, type type uh, <laughs> uh, type narrative. I mean, she could go to Esso, she could go to she could go to this fictional, you know, um, you know, landmass that may or may not exist, uh, which I think it does because his you know his world is 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 very rooted in our world and so it does make sense that from this medievalist society oh what what's you know that's the end of the world you'll drop mm-hmm. i mean it's a very sort of pre-columbian view of the uh, of the world that there would be this kind of completely unexplored cut off landmass uh, uh, to the west uh to the west of westeros uh i i would have thought that would have been a natural now maybe they they believe that um uh you know, Kit Harrington could more easily carry a show, right. or well, it was his more... idea, right? This sort yeah. of it stems from him, and so then the question is, how ma- do you actually get the gang back together, or is it like, no, this is gonna be, it's gonna be John and Torment Road Show, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, and if that's the case, I want to see Duncan Egg rather than John and, <laughs> All right. and Torment. Yeah. Interesting that you bring up Duncan Egg because. We are introduced to a character for the very first time in this chapter, who's a significant character in the Duncan Egg series. We get introduced to Arian the Monstrous, who Dunk, uh, Duncan the Tall is going to have to fight in the Hedge Knight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, I, I don't know the, the, the sequence of the writing here, but I'm pretty sure this is before... The Hedge Knight is... That's actually not correct. I looked this up. Oh, good. Uh, Thank you for correcting yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I wasn't sure myself. I, I, I would have thought the same thing you did as well. But, uh, you know, there is this reference to the Hedge Knight that we get where Mormont, uh, Mormont mentions some of the, some of the, the characters and, yeah. and what happened. Uh, the Hedge Knight was published in August of 1998. Uh, uh, Clash of Kings was published in November of 1998. So... George R. R. Martin was working on them simultaneously. I would suspect, uh, and so he he put a little reference to, uh, you know, when, when he was writing it, the Hedge Knight hadn't come out yet. But uh, when 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 people would have been reading this in 1998, the Hedge Knight would have, and if they hadn't bought it, maybe ooh, that, that sounds interesting, uh, you know. So it was a little bit of a right. uh, uh, little bit of an advertisement, you might say. Yeah, I'm so glad you corrected me on this point. I didn't know that. So it sounds like. I mean, who knows how these these things are actually conceived, but it sounds like he's he's almost thinking of that story in this chapter, right? Mm-hmm. So that's 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 kind of an interesting little Easter egg. Uh, no, no pun intended on <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, Easter egg or, dra- or dragon egg, we might call it in this universe, right, sure, sure, uh, or Duncan egg. Um, yeah. So I. I was interested in that that little bit because not only does it connect us to the other world of the Hedge Knight, it also connects us to this idea 
that now we can see a pattern in Targaryen kings. Right? We knew that there was a mad king before. Now we are introduced to this other guy, Arian the Monstrous, who ends up like wanting to turn into a dragon, so he like swallows some wild wildfire. wildfire. Yeah. yeah, you get the idea that oh no, crazy runs in the family, <laughs> and I think this is the first time you actually see this pattern demonstrated on the page. Um, I, th- I think that you know you, you kind of it, it, for the first time I think here you're seeing. The Mad King Eris is not a one-off. That this is actually a problem with the Targaryens. That sometimes they come out wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah. They're just it's just in it's kind of baked into their whole little program. So that is an interesting choice here because it almost expresses something of a, the duality of Targaryens. Yes. So you're suggesting the duality of Targaryens. And of course, we know on retrospect that Jon Snow is a Targaryen. And if we've been reading carefully enough, we've seen already that he really is a creature of duality. Like if there if there's anything that we know about Jon Snow, he's Lord Snow, right? He's he's Lord, like he comes from a rich family. You know, he's he's had a silver spoon in his mouth. But he's also a snow, like he's born a bastard, and so he has that duality. He has the duality of being a member of the Night's Watch and yet also having ties to the politics of the South. You know, he's also he's got a duality in the sense that he's going to fall in love with the wildling culture. And yet he's also going to be the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And of course, the ultimate duality is that he's also he's going to be, you know, John and Aegon at at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. So already here we have baked in this duality into this character that that Martin is developing, and uh, so nice little history of the Targaryens in this chapter that I think kind of foreshadows what what we see to come. Absolutely, and I you know it, it's so easy to get the the show and the books confused as to what is referenced when. Certainly, the show. Uh, references that duality with the madness and genius mm-hmm. of the Targaryens. Uh, you know, I don't think it's mentioned in the first season, but it, it starts picking up, you know, uh, I think Jorah mentions it. Uh, and then, and then, um, uh, uh, Barristan Selmy several times. And then Viser- uh, Varys mm-hmm. uh, mentions it to Danny. I mean, you know, it, it, it like escalates as we move towards, I, you know, if next time I go back and watch the show, you know, when some summer when I'm not teaching and I have, you know, a lot of time on my hands, I, I do, you know, to me, the, the sort of the mad Danny angle seemed kind of rushed. Mm, yeah. Sure. Uh, but my, my guess is there's more, you know, more hints than, than I realized at the time. I think so. I think uh, if you go back and rewatch the show, I think they're dropping hints early on that we, that, you know, she could go either way. I mean, if you, if you just, the, the final episode of that first season, right? Yeah. You know, she's she's ruthless. She ties Miri Mazdor to that mm-hmm. that pyre and lights her on fire. And yeah. Lights her on fire and she's you know, she's all, you know, in, in the books it's even more clear because she's her dreams are betraying something of a duality in her. But um you're right. The, the last season did feel like kind of a mad dash to the madness. But I, I think the right? The escalation of this metaphor of the coin being flipped into the air, you know, yeah. I don't think we heard that in the first, 
you know, three seasons and it comes up multiple, multiple, you know, I mean, it probably comes up once or twice a season after that. Yeah, and yeah. I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if the same is true in the, in, in the books and uh, you know, that, that this reference to Targaryen Targaryens kind of go yeah, one yeah. direction or the other uh, starts to kind of escalate as well. <laughs> well, I, I do like the idea that the other thing, the other bit of duality that I forgot to mention, which should be like the most obvious for John, is that he's a ward, right? So he's on the border between man and wolf as well. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So, Andrew, if it's all right with you, I think I'll just go ahead and jump right into my synopsis. Sure. This is John's first POV chapter in Clash of Kings. John finds Sam in a subterranean library poring over old maps. The two surface to find new recruits being tested by Andrew Tarth, who is the new master at arms. Donald Noy repeats the gossip that John has already heard. Rob has been named king in the north. John and Sam bring the maps to the old bear who is quarreling with a ranger about his decision to range north. Once they are alone... Mormont tells John the recent history of Targaryen kings and explains that Maester Aemon was once offered the throne. Aemon, of course, quietly refused. Mormont asks John what he intends to do now that Rob is king in the north. John claims that he will, like Aemon, keep his vows. So, Andrew, I have asked you to prepare a observation and a question about this chapter. What do you bring to the table? Okay. Uh, well, I think uh, this um, chapter is, you know, in the early part of uh, A Clash of Kings, and much like a few of the chapters that go before it, it's sort of a transitionary chapter from the sort of the chaos that envelops uh, the, the prior book uh, to sort of the main storyline. Uh, we get Arya, um, you know, who is uh, at the end of, we get an Arya chapter uh, where she's being uh, in the early part of her journey up to supposedly the Night's Watch. Yeah. You know, so, sort of her new life of being sort of very unsettled, uh, both physically and and you know, emotionally in one sense, and kind of wandering around and, uh, you know, looking for safe harbors, uh, right. you know, for several books worth. We get Sansa, uh, Sansa uh, sort of transitionary chapter for Sansa into what living with Joffrey is going to be like. Uh, and it's not going to be pleasant. Right. Yes, uh, yes. You know, we get Tyrion, you know, we, we do see him visit the small council in his first chapter, which uh, comes, you know, uh, uh, very soon before John's first chapter. But, you know, it's it's more just introducing the concept that he's going to sit, at, you know, he's going to disrupt this uh, uh, governing body yeah. uh, later. We're going to see. So it's just really a transitioning chapter here as well. Uh, and, the, and and John, John one, uh of Clash of Kings is also very transitionary uh, for a lot of different, a lot of different reasons. I think it's in a, uh, it, it's a chapter that's easy to read, you know, Oh, it's just a prep uh, preparation for the ranging, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, in, in a late chapter in game of Thrones, he says his vows in front of a heart tree. Yeah. And the statement is you, you knelt as boys now rise as men. Well, that, those are just words. That's just a ritual ritual. Uh, Really the transition is John deciding he's going to honor his vows. Uh, And this chapter ends with Mormont saying, essentially it's okay to be troubled 
by what's happening down south, but be troubled while you honor your vows. Right. And we, we sort of won't, won't have a problem. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a transition of knowledge and history. They're, they're going from north to uh, from south to north. They're crossing the wall. That's crossing a line. Hmm. But they're also crossing a line in what's familiar with what's unknown. Uh, clearly, things are afoot north of the wall that they cannot understand or explain. And that even someone of Benjamin's caliber disappears you know so whatever it is that's mm. up there it's not just run-of-the-mill wildlings that are running amok uh and uh it's unclear to the degree to which i think uh othar you know the the, the sort of the reanimated corpses that come to life you know cl- cl- clearly that indicates to, to people that uh something is afoot but you know they certainly don't understand the full sweep yet of what they face but they're gonna once they cross that wall and go north on this great ranging um they will slowly but surely be introduced into this world of really the past of lore of mythology and including right. uh elements that they don't necessarily believe in at this point right at one point mormont says something like yeah what does that guy know he, he said he saw a 15-foot-high bear at one point. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he kind of pauses himself and thinks, I guess I just saw a dead man. <laughs> you know, <I> just, <laughs> a dead man just tried to kill me. To kill me, yeah. You know, like, two weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have believed, you know, in the existence of a reanimated dead person. But I now that I've seen that with my own eyes... I'm a little bit, he's a little bit more open-minded to maybe that path to the unknown. And he kind of shakes it off. He's like, yeah, 15-foot bear. Forget forget, forget that. I'm not going to not gonna go in for old wives' tales or something like that. Um, but you do get the sense that, like, even Mormont, who's been, you know, manning the wall for, you know, I don't know for how long, but you, you get the sense that it's, you know, several decades. In a while. Yeah. There's still so much about the North he has no idea about. And, you know, he thinks that he's going out to find some wildlings to, you know, to get revenge on or something. But there is a sense, even with him, that he's like, I, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to find north of, north of this post. It, one thing I think is so interesting about uh, the beginning, the end of Game of Thrones and throughout Clash of Kings is the comet. Uh, that they all the characters see up in the sky. Yeah. I mean, it really yeah. serves to kind of bring some of the characters and storylines together vicariously because they all have this shared experience. Yeah, in this chapter, they call it Mormon's torch because it's Mormon's torch. Yeah, I thought I'd forgotten that uh, until yeah. I read the uh, <laughs> we read this chapter. But everyone interprets it differently. Everyone interprets uh-huh. it, uh, you know, in a in a way that you know pertains to their own situation. Uh, but the, but there's often linkages to magic uh with the appearance of this uh-huh. of, of this uh you know um heavenly sort of phenomenon uh you know for danny it's dragons uh for for the night's watch it's the ranging that they uh take place i think it's in a future john chapter where i think he might be in the frost fangs and he looks up and sees it and you know mm-hmm. uh, just like at that point it's emblazoned across half the sky and, you know, he's in the frost fangs, you know, ice and then fire. Right. Um, sure, sure. You, you get that, you, you don't get that particular imagery with, with, with Danny, for instance, because she's, you know, she's in the deserts of, 
of, um, you know, she's working her way towards Karth. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, every, you almost see an inter- a little peek into everyone's interior by how they interpret the comet, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in many cases, it, it does connect with, because uh, I, I think there's also Melisandre uses it in her, um, you know, uh, attempts to convert uh you know all the men on dragonstone yeah i mean they're, they're, it's yep. it's interpreted differently but always in service of uh a a certain you know aspect so for the you know for the night's watch everyone's anxious they're going on this ranging uh many of them are they know they're going to die in fact they uh, there's uh george r r martin puts this um little it's like two sentences in about the the new recruits that are being trained mm-hmm. and, and you, you realize that these are replacements for some of the men that are that are about to go off and die right uh you know so they, calling it mormont's torch you know sort of gives a, a little bit of you know it, it sort of conveys a little bit of security and maybe confidence that okay well you know we're going off into this horrible situation where you know we could die of frostbite or we could be killed by yeah, wildlings or, yeah. or something worse, but at least we have the old bear. At least he's leading this ranging. You know, at least he, the most knowledgeable, formidable uh, leader uh, with the most experience, is the one that's taking us up there. So maybe we'll be okay. Yeah, this chapter does a little bit more to introduce, I guess, the wall as a as a character in the story, right? Mm, yeah, good point. Yeah. And it's it's a really important character in the story, and I mean it's it's very much based on Hadrian's Wall. And if you think of the Andals as sort of like you know the the, the Romans who have you know ventured all the way north, you know, to northern England, you know, the idea was that Hadrian's Wall marked the end of civilization. You know, to talk about the border of known and unknown, it was like you know there there's all kinds of monsters up there that we have no idea about. Um, and I, I do get the sense that this, this is how the wall functions in this story. It really does separate the civilized and the known world from, from, you know, the unknown. And, and of course in this world, almost all the rumors are true, right? <laughs> yes, it turns out. <laughs> so, so yeah, imagine Hadrian's Wall, except for all of the rumors about what was north of Hadrian's Wall happen to be true. There are, there, you are going to meet creatures that are 15 feet tall that kind of look a little bit like bears. Yes, it's not just the Picts and the Scots you have to worry about. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, Scipio, Scipio Africanus, uh, uh, the Roman general who, you know, uh, took several... Uh-huh. Uh, forge uh, you know down into africa what was writing about 50 you know fantastical creatures and, right. and chimera, chimeras and stuff like that uh it, yeah it would almost be as if all that all the, the, everything that the romans thought and feared yep turned out to be turned out to be correct uh they, uh-huh. they weren't just they weren't just men living up there uh there were these uh other things that could kill you you know it's funny this is a little bit of a parentheses here but just yesterday, my son was telling me, how is it that a giraffe is real and a unicorn isn't? It's like, if you think about it, if you think about it a unicorn is just a horse with a, a horn. You know, that's, it seems more, much more plausible than a horse with a 10-foot neck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I never really thought of it that way. But, uh, you know, I, I think 
to the Romans, uh, a giraffe was just as fantastical until they actually yeah. started bringing them back, you know. Well, that's right. And if, all right, so let's say you are, you know, roaming in a different part of the world for the first time. The first time you see something as magnificent as an elephant or as magnificent as a, you know, a giraffe or something like that, you absolutely think, well, the, anything could be real, you know? You you could find a 15-foot, you know, high bear, Um you know, it could be that there are dragons in, you know, if you go far enough to Ethiopia, you might find a, a dragon or something like that. Because if that creature is real, then all of the other rumors I heard now are seem a little bit more plausible, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, it, it's easy to forget that this is, in essence, a medieval world. Uh, and their, their knowledge when it comes to sort of unification of knowledge and standardization uh, is, is very wanting. Uh, it's, it's very much a localized affair. Uh, and th this one's compounded by the fact that they've constructed this giant wall, um, you know, notionally to keep things from the North mm -hmm. out, but it also keeps them South. I mean, uh, most of the, most of the um, people on the wall have never been North of it. Um, for many of them, this gigantic ranging that they're doing is the first, uh, ever uh mm -hmm. because you know i think the the ranging we see the only other scene we have prior to this great ranging north that's set north of the wall is the prologue to game of thrones right. and it's a it's a group of three people uh right. and you, you get the idea that that's much more the the uh the, the way it works is you have three rangers five rangers that go out yeah i uh, wanted you know, to talk a little bit about that prologue um just in the sense of the the foreboding right that that prologue gives mm -hmm. us a, a really an idea of the ultimate monster that they're all going to have to face yes i i mean we, uh, the characters in the story don't know it but george R. R. martin gives us a preview right off the bat yes okay so I noticed that at the beginning of this chapter, John is described as having mole-skinned gloves on. Mm. And that's exactly what Waymar Royce was wearing when he was ranging north. So Waymar Royce was sort of that cocky guy from the south who he he thought he could like boss around these older grizzled members of the night's watch and of course he dies within the, the his first ranging right yeah i mean he, he's not taking the advice of the people right. who have experienced uh, uh north of the wall themselves that's right and he's you know he's sort of belittling them and he's kind of called out as this little lordling who's had a charmed life who's now is out up at the wall he's kind of like cast himself as the ideal male right and he's uh, you know he's got the best clothing and that includes moleskin gloves well in this chapter we have another kid who grew up you know in a in a high lord's house who never wanted for anything who's now wearing these moleskin gloves and i think that there's some kind of callback to the fate of waymore royce like are we meant to fear for John's life up north because of course we know what happens to these well-to-do lordlings when they when they range north yeah interesting I, I hadn't uh, picked up on that uh, uh, callback 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I think the difference is, uh, or a difference is, I should say, uh, well, number one, uh, you know, John's a POV character uh, and unlikely to be uh, um, served similarly. Um, but John does way, way more. Roy, uh, the reason uh, Royce is there is because he's not the eldest son uh, right. in his family. I mean, you know, he doesn't he's not going to inherit. Uh, he's not going to be the next uh uh, he's not, uh, I think he's, if I remember correctly, he's, uh, uh, I think he's a third. Oh, it's either even the third. I think of, he might uh, even I, be the third of three boys or something like that. Of, of bronze, you know, not iron, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, so, you know, he has no, no prospects essentially. Uh, so for him, you know, a hedge knight, uh, you know, he could, he, 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 he doesn't seem like the type of person that, uh, would be a natural fit for the Citadel, uh, so this is one, you know, one one avenue that he has at his his disposal. Yeah. But he still he still grew up with the uh, with the mantle of legitimacy, uh, whereas uh, John did not. Right. That's even called out at the end of this chapter. Like, you know, Mormont says, "What are you gonna do now that you're you know you you knew your you knew your brother was gonna be lord, but being a king is a different thing entirely." You are going to live a much different life than he is. And in all the ways that he's pampered and praised, you are going to have a hard existence and you will get, there are no songs written about you, sir. Um, what are you going to do? And he says, what could I do? I'm a bastard. In fact, I don't mind. Let me just read that little section there. If you will indulge me. Sure, of course. Okay, so here's here's the the exchange, and this is right at the end of the chapter. I and I thought this was a brilliant little um, back and forth here. Mormont gave a whistle, and the bird flew to him again and settled on his arm. A lord's one thing, a king's another. He offered the raven a handful of corn from his pocket. They will garb your brother Rob in silks, satins, and velvets of a hundred different colors while you live and die in black ring mail. He will wed some beautiful princess and father sons on her. You will have no wife, nor will you ever hold a child in your own, of your own blood in your arms. Rob will rule, you will serve. Men will call you a crow. Him they will call your grace. Singers will praise every little thing he does, while your greatest deeds will all go unsung. Tell me that none of this troubles you, John, and I'll name you a liar. And I'll know I have the truth of it. John drew himself up, taut as a bowstring. And if it did trouble me, what might I do, bastard as I am? What will you do, Mormont asked, bastard as you are? Be troubled, said John, and keep my vows. So, yeah, I think Mormont does absolutely call out the the difference, right? Mormont calls out the this this reality that um, John uh, has a choice to make, but at the it really is no choice at all. I think um, he can keep his vows and 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 keep the life he's created for himself up north, or he can try for something else. And I think whatever whatever he tries for is going to end badly. I don't really think he has a choice. Um, and I think Mormon is sort of getting him, coaxing him into that realization. And it, it's interesting that uh, he does have an internal 
I don't want to say monologue because it's only a few sentences earlier in the chapter when he when he's talking to uh, uh, the blacksmith. Yeah, um, right. Noi. Uh, yeah. yeah, Noi. And, you know, he says, uh, Rob, a king, the brother he'd played with, fought with, yeah. shared his first cup of wine uh-huh. with, but not mother's milk. No. <laughs> so now Rob will sip summer wine from jeweled goblets while uh-huh. I'm kneeling beside some stream sucking snow melt from cupped hands. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think sometimes we're conditioned by the show. Uh-huh. Um you know, because uh, it's easier to watch the show twice than it is to read the, you know, I mean, it's a, uh, well, it's a time commitment for both, I suppose. But, you know, going back and reading this, uh, you know, I'd forgotten, you forget how petulant uh, Sansa is until you go back and read the books. You know, you forget <laughs> how jealous Rob, uh, sorry, uh, John is of Rob. Yeah. Uh, but he is quite, quite jealous. And, you know, we see that because of the point of view structure that that's lacking in the um right in the that's show. lacking in the in the show but i also think they they wanted to uh um you know they sort of understood they they had key knowledge we didn't uh you know benioff and weiss that uh you know danny was gonna go mm-hmm. uh rogue mm-hmm. and destroy king's landing so you know they, they realized that okay so john is the sort of the uh the moral center uh and the uh this sort of in one sense the protagonist of this entire thing uh and i think they removed that from him this jealousy of, of rob but you're right it comes out in this chapter in two different places internally and then you know the old bear who's yeah. you know very you know he he understands and we haven't even talked yet about the his comparing and contrasting john with amon which is right. another very um perceptive thing that the old bear does but you know this whole notion of of it's okay to to be to to be disturbed by this it's okay to view the and see into this injustice what it's more your actions that will define who you are, who are you going to be? And this is where we, we get John's full commitment. I think to, I have made up my mind. Yeah. I'm a man of the night's watch. Yeah. You kind of had that at the end of the last book when he, he actually does right away, right? He thinks he's going to go and join the retinue of his brother. Then, you know, he's brought back and, you know he the the bear the bear knows the bear knows that he left and that his his the brothers uh of the night's watch brought him back and um he makes john he forces john to take the sword a, a second time and and reaffirm his commitment to the night's watch and I, this this chapter almost kind of reminds you that he is resolved to to be a member of the night's watch but it also reminds you what he's given up by you know, <laughs> deciding he's going to live a life of celibacy at the age of fourteen, which I don't I don't recommend that uh, just in general. Um, yeah. But let's talk about the parallel between John and Eamon here, because I think upon first read, I had no clue that you know John's a secret Targaryen, right? Um, I don't know about you. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. 
We have something for every one of our podcasts or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. There's a very clear purpose of why Martin has put the Targaryen history in John's chapter. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting, first of all, as a narrative device, um, you know, the old, the old bear is very, very terse character. Uh, he's not known for his verbosity. And then he has this like, you know, two page monologue, uh, <laughs> essentially, which, which is occasionally interrupted by John having a question or two, but, yeah. you know, I mean, this, this is probably more of words than the bear speaks and the entirety <laughs> of the rest of the, uh, sure. uh, so it's very, it's very kind of shocking, but, you know, in, in one sense on, on some fundamental level, it, it, it's it's Martin very cleverly working exposition uh, and history into a, a, a mm-hmm. chapter uh, because there's only sort of two ways to do it. You know, number one, if somebody thinks it, um, you know, in their interior monologue or number two, if somebody's actually saying it, but you got to find a situation where it makes sense. And th- right. this is a situation where it makes sense. Um, and, and then on the, the, the next level, you know, it's, it's, theoretically and actually i uh for sure uh the old bear using this example of the past about how somebody negotiated you know uh duty family honor pride all you know uh the, the sudden realization that you're a, a political liability mm-hmm. to somebody that you love you know um and and then trying to connect it to John's situation because there are parallels, but then on the third level, which you've already pointed out, and uh, you know, I, I have a friend that we, uh, you know, after every episode, we call each other, and you know, when we were reading the books, we would, you know, we would uh, talk and text mm-hmm. our ideas mm-hmm. and text our, our our ideas, and you know, he very picked picked up. This is actually about John. It's not about Amos. You know, this is John's right. lineage yeah. that he's describing. You know, I mean, he he's talking about well, well, Amon's. You know, when they killed Amon's, you know, grandfather. You know, when they wiped out the Targaryen line. Well, that's that's John's father. You know, they're, they're talking about Rhaegar. Right. Um. You know that this is sort of there's a third layer to all of this. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's, uh, that, that this is really, 
uh, John's uh, and, and including John's future too. Yes, um, that's right. Turning down, you know, Amon turned down the throne. Uh, John learns that he is literally the heir to the Iron mm-hmm. Throne, or he will, right? So. And then yeah. he's going to have the choice, you know. What? Oh yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You're right. In the, in the in the books, we haven't gotten there yet, and we cannot assume, I guess, that it would be the same. In the but we sort of do have a hint that uh, that what Benioff, uh, but the 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 large stroke, uh, the broad strokes are. Similar, I think so, and I think that even with the even with the acknowledgement that John is a secret Targaryen you don't bake that into the plot without having some kind of consequence on that character, right? That character, all the rules of storytelling are that once that character finds out his true identity, it has, he has to make some choice about it. There has to be some consequence for the, for that person's interior or that person's plot line. Yeah. I mean, I think some consequential decisions are always part of Martin's, uh, uh, end game and you know his his famous quote as he said you know many times and you know this comes up all the time when he's giving interviews is uh that he always felt that william faulkner's quote the only thing worth writing about is the human con uh, the human heart and conflict with himself yeah. well this would be the ultimate uh decision between duty honor pride family uh for 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 john snow so i think we can safely uh assume some sort of larger uh things and this is probably one of them well Uh, i'll even go further to i mean i don't think even we have to assume it because kind of buried in the middle we have stannis offering john to legitimize him Mm -hmm. so john becomes a lord commander of the night's watch and that's a, that's quite an achievement, right? But what Stannis offers him is to become John Stark, yep, the new Lord of Winterfell, something that he never thought was possible. So, you know, even we almost have there a, a, a maybe a microcosm of the larger character conflict that probably foreshadows what what John will have to do at the end, right? So. Yeah, great point. I mean, he, you know, uh, so by the end, he's already had a moment where he's turned his back on family legacy uh, and mm-hmm. uh, legitimacy in order to, uh, you know, keep his his uh, vows to this new brotherhood that that, mm-hmm. that he has formed. I think that's uh, that's an excellent point that it it is sort of a, almost a dry run or a microcosm. Right. Okay. Um, let me ask you this question, and this is kind of an interesting litmus test i find do you like john as a character are you interested in john as a character yes i i I do i do uh enjoy john i think uh you know for some of the same reasons you just mentioned regarding you know his sort of existence as two things simultaneously uh you know i think he you could say the same about bran uh, you could say the same about Arya. I don't think necessarily that I find his character arc as interesting as Arya's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do find one thing that I think is very interesting that that doesn't get raised in the you know the uh, the, the blacksmith uh, Noi, you know, mentions the three types of 
of, of metal, uh, <laughs> metal than for the Brathian brothers. But yeah. you know, one thing, one thing, you know, I mentioned this, the, 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 uh, this friend that we you know we discussed uh, a concept um, that we discussed a long one. He came up with the idea that Arya is essentially like a Valyrian steel blade. Uh, we don't know exactly how Valyrian steel is made, but it's folded. It, it's folded back on itself. And she's being sort of sharpened by all these horrible things that are happening to her, uh, much as uh, her sister, you know, San- mm-hmm. Sansa is. Mm-hmm. John, I won't say necessarily there are all these horrible things that are happening to him, but he's constantly being confronted with duty and honor. And, and you know, uh, he has to answer a, a difficult question after difficult yeah, question. Yeah, more than any yeah. other character, he's, more than any other he's character. confronted with choice. He has to make a choice almost every chapter. Which path am I going to choose? And it's usually the path of honor for him. It's a very sort of dark choose your own adventure where, (laughs) uh, you know, he's being confronted with uh, very difficult uh, decisions that are that are less plot driven and more character driven. Uh, And, you know, to me, that's also that kind of folding back on itself Mm -hmm. to sharpen him into what he needs to needs to be. So I do find his, uh, you know, character occasionally tiresome. Because uh, I think that that is the other side of it. I think that there is something to be said for like, like I think a lot of it does divide. It does divide readers. I, I think that a lot of readers think he's boring. He's you know he's he's a boy and he's not he hasn't developed yet. Maybe he'll get interesting later, but in this early parts of his story arc, he's just kind of a dull witted, boring character. Um. I don't feel like that's how I experience him, but every now and again, he's kind of a tool, right? <laughs> yeah, he's a little yeah. bit like, like you know, in this chapter, he he thinks of Sam as a boy. Sam's older than he is, but he's like, eh, he's he's just a boy. And then, of course, you know, he's what fifteen or whatever, and he looks on these new recruits, and he's like, ah, they smell of summer. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, yeah, he's like uh, six months removed from uh, exactly. uh, showing up at the wall. You know, I think you know you mentioned Sam, and we haven't really talked a, a little bit about. We haven't talked much about Sam. Uh-huh. Um, I think John doesn't realize what he has in Sam. He he still views right. Sam as a friend. You know, sort of like this opposites attract mm-hmm. type friendship. But I think this is the chapter where, even though John doesn't realize it yet, because he's a little bit of a tool, as, yeah. you, as you mentioned, that 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 Sam truly finds his niche. You know, it's in yep. the library. It's in learning. It's in wisdom. It's in trying to figure out what people in the past experienced and interpret it for the present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in the fullness of time. John is going to realize Sam's value as more than just a friend and they're going to forge, you know, their, their sort of friendship will, will, you know, evolve into more of a partnership. Uh, but I think Sam is, you know, Sam becomes more comfortable on the, you know, if you read the next John chapter, mm-hmm. John, John thinks to himself, how is it that Sam is the only one who, who is less nervous north of the wall you know everyone else is becoming more and more nervous mm-hmm. whereas sam because he's learning S- sam is noticing the villages they go through and it's connecting the things he's read that other people have yep. written and you know you, we start to see sam mature well uh, while, yeah while... this chapter does a lot for creating the foundation we already talked about kind of the foundation for john snow's you know final 
reveal as a secret Targaryen, right? <laughs> but in addition to that, what this chapter does is it establishes Sam as the true guide, right? He's yeah. the one that's pouring over all of these books that are crumbling. Jon Snow sees no value in it at all. He's like, what? Who? Who cares about what? Who cares about how they ate pickles five hundred years ago? This is all stuff that Sam finds fascinating, and he's going to become an expert on Northern culture in a way that no one else in this story is, because he's been pouring over not just the the texts, you know, not just the books, but it, it, the crumbling scrolls, and that's going to give him a certain superpower. Yeah, it's it's, it's so interesting uh, that um, you know that Sam Sam is actually reading an inv- inventory. When when John comes in, and the inventory is you know you know I think John says well, who cares how much how many barrels of cod they had <laughs> well yeah. you know it, 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 this is foreshadowing two things it's foreshadowing the old bears inventorying of the Targaryen history that's right. about to take place like yeah. ten minutes later in in John time but uh, you know if uh, certainly not in the books yet because we're not there, but in the show, it's in an inventory of, uh, I think is, is his name Maynard? Um, which, which character are we thinking of? Uh, well, when Sam's at the Citadel, yeah. uh, he's copying this inventory <laughs> of a di- diary. Uh, and that's where he, it's in this where the guy's taking out like the, he's right. He, bowel movements and yeah. how many steps where, where he sure. finds the, the evidence that will support Brand's vision that John's actually uh, a Targaryen. Well, not just it's that, a, it, but that he's actually l- legitimized. He's not a bastard. Legitimized, yeah. Right? You know, it, it comes in this inventory. You know how many steps there are in the Citadel? No. 15,782. Guess how many windows are in the Great Sept of Baylor? None anymore. That's true. This high septon Maynard, he recorded everything. He even recorded his own bowel movements. What does annulment mean? It's when a man sets aside his lawful wife. Maynard says here that he issued an annulment for Prince Ragger and remarried him to someone else at the same time in a secret ceremony in Dawn. Is that a common thing in the South? These maesters. They set me to the task of preserving that man's wind accounting and annulments and bowel movements for all eternity, while the secret to defeating the Night King is probably sitting on some dusty shelf somewhere, completely ignored. But that's all right, isn't it? We can all become slavering, murderous imbeciles enthralled to evil incarnate, as long as we can have access to the full records of High Septon Maynard's 15,782 shits! I don't know. I mean, this 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 book was probably written in 97, if it was published in 98. You know, I don't know if, if Martin was thinking that far ahead that that he put this inventory thing here, mm. but it is an interesting connection yeah. uh, regardless of whether or not it turns out to be true. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, Donald Noy's assessment of the Baratheon boys, right? Mm-hmm. So he has a particular insight into this because he was the Baratheon blacksmith. And so he, his assessment is that Robert was true steel. Um, by that, he means, he was he was made for war, 
you know, basically. And if you hang them on castle, the castle, castle forge. Yeah. You know, right. For, for fighting. Yeah. If you hang them up and you don't, you know, bring it out to battle, it's just going to rust. Yeah. Um, Stannis is pure iron, which means that, um, it's going to break before it bends. Right. It's, it's not been, it's not been forged at all. You do get the sense that Stannis is very rigid. That right? seems very accurate. Yeah. And Renly is copper, which looks nice, but at the end of the day, doesn't have much value, right? It's shiny. You know, that that's about as much as he can say about Renly. And I think that there's something about, that. you know, number one, you know, this guy is not necessarily uh, the best judge of character or whatever. I don't think we should imagine him as that, but... Um, you know, it's, he's a he's got a point of view just like everyone else in this book. But it is a nice shorthand for how those brothers are different, and I thought that was an interesting way, an interesting place to insert it in this chapter. Well, particularly, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, where where we are in the story when it comes to uh, Stannis and and uh, the Brathians. I, I think this well, we is got before... him in the prologue. I mean, that, that's basically it. he's found out. You know, he's he's got Ned's letter. He's he's allied with the Red Woman. Um, he's he's uh, eschewed Cresson, um, and he's decided that he's going to go to war, whether he has allies or not. Um, but I think this is before Catelyn has been dispatched. Yep, down to Renly. Uh, so you know, this is not 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 only is this, uh, um, you know helpful information for John as he's trying to decide what mm-hmm. metal he's made of. It's also a prognostication of two characters that we're about to see a lot more of uh, in, in, in Renly when, when, when Catelyn uh, goes to uh, when Cat goes to, you know, to, to bring Rob's letter to him, but also Stannis when mm-hmm. he shows up too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's, it's sort of setting the stage for the conflict between uh, iron and copper, if you will, that's about to play out <laughs> yeah. probably right. in just about a hundred pages or so. That's right. That's right. All right. Some no- <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, notable introductions in the chapter. We hear the hallways referred to as worm walks because they, they just, they're subterranean. They feel a lot more like subterranean wormholes than they feel like an actual hallway. We get introduced to Andrew Tarth in the flesh. Um, Thorin Smallwood and his weak chin. <laughs> um, and of course, we we are introduced to Arian the Monstrous, who's who we meet later in the Hedge Knight. Um, differences from the shows. Well, the entire chapter. This is not a chapter that is represented in the show at all. The beginning of season two. Uh, they're already up. They're already up. At Craster's Keep. So this entire chapter is um, a book-only affair. And then notable departures in this chapter. None that I could find. You know, no, no one necessary. No one departs in this. In this. Chapter. Well, I, I think uh, Sir Alistair Thorne departs off camera. You might say, right? Well, the, the only yes, re- he's been sent south, right? Yeah, with the hand yeah, to yeah. take the 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 hand, the cord, and you know that they don't they don't make the they don't make the point, but there is this interesting reference, uh, you know, that once again, you know, we're we're taking stuff from the show that later on, but you know, the reason Sir Alistair Thorne is dispatched 
to the court to take the hand is that he's well known at court. Right. Uh, you know, he moved in those circles and you still has a lot of friends. Uh, but the reason he's on the wall is that he was a loyalist. He was a Targaryen loyalist and had to take the black uh, after the battle of the Trident is, 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 is my understanding. Uh, well, th- that brings into sharper relief um, that, uh, you know, it, it's it's then ironic that he is so hard on Jon Snow, who's literally by the end of the sh- of the television show is the last Targaryen. Yeah, you know that. Yeah. I mean, because he's sort of the Snape character. You might <laughs> yeah. you might say yeah. you know he's like the Severus yeah. Snape, and uh, and there is sort of this trans another transition in this chapter is sort of a Harry Potter uh, <laughs> thing that you see a lot in young adult, which is you know I think you see it in Wizard of Earthsea as well. Um, you know, th- this has almost been like uh, John has been negotiating the Wizard Academy, uh, you know, Wizard of Earthsea or or uh, um, Hogwarts. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's had conflicts, but they're more of the conflict with uh, uh, Slytherin, uh, <laughs> and now he's about to head off and fight Voldemort. Yeah, sure. Type 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 deal. But yeah, so so Thorn is gone, which removes sort of a thorn in the side of John, John Snow, but now he's going to have more substantial thorns that he has to deal with. Right, 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 right. Uh, One last thing I wanted to note, Um, like some people take a lot of interest in what uh, Mormont's bird says. All right. So yes, I just, I just want to, I just made some notes. Here's what Mormont's bird says in this chapter. He says snow once. He says me three times. He says old twice. He says strong thrice. Fool once. And then king three times. So I'm sure that someone will like be able to kind of like make a one to one with like Morse code or something. Do you have any do you have any thoughts? I you know, I don't have any thoughts on those particular words other than king being prognosticatory. Yeah. Uh, obviously for for uh uh you know one of the decisions that 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 John will have to make yeah. I mean there are a couple fan theories in this you know one is the the whole uh Tormund uh and Mage Mormont uh having an affair because uh, they they both talk about you know uh you know having relations with a bear and it is interesting that he only has sons and she only has daughters and oh, there is this theory, there is this theory out there that uh their their whole uh you know i I had sex with a bear basically (laughs) is is a reference to this you know and wildlings are known to to raid onto onto the coast of barrel Uh island oh interesting i love Uh, it i love that very much uh i'm gonna be looking for that for sure one thing that i thought of a while back was mormon has some kind of knowledge about what craster's doing with the others that's certainly indicated in the show i can't remember if it is in the book. Okay, I'll not. keep my eyes out for that too. But it seems to me that Mormont is a little bit less like uh, judgmental of Craster yes. when he finds out that the Craster is sending the boys out to the others. Yeah. And I wonder if the Raven represents some kind of connection to the North for Mormont, whether Mormont is getting you know, getting information from the three-eyed crow or something 
through through the Raven. I don't know. I mean, it's it's just well, one of those things that you, you know, it would kind of be cool, but you don't really have evidence for it. There, that's the second conspiracy, actually, is that the uh, and and this one I think may actually. I mean, I think the the Mormont uh, Mage Mormont one is is very fanciful, and there's not a lot of direct evidence. But mm-hmm. I don't know if this there, there's actually something in the books, and I can't recall where it is, or maybe George R. R. Martin sort of indicated it might be true that the uh, the Ravens actually used to be able to speak. Uh, well, that would like, be a very Tolkien um, uh, point of view on this, right? Yeah, and in, you know, in addition to that, it it connects to the actual ravens who are uh, who, who who sort of fall into legend, but you can actually visit them at the Tower of London. I don't know if you know oh, yeah. about this. Oh, I've 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 seen them at the Tower yeah. of London. Yeah, they, I mean ravens they, do ravens do mimic other animals, and I've actually seen this in person. They will mimic other animals, and they can be taught to mimic human speech as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the theory is that uh, they used to actually deliver the message themselves. I mean, you know, yeah. speak the message, but then they, you know, with magic sort of being in diminish in in, in decline, uh, they they started, you know, uh, tying up you know rolling up little small sure. messages and attaching them to their their legs and then they mm-hmm. simply became not the vessel but the vehicle got it uh for 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 the med- yeah, yeah, but i mean that's another sort of conspiracy theory that sort of connects with this particular chapter yeah right right uh i appreciate your your time uh sir thank you for uh bringing us both wisdom and wit well, thank you for having me on. This has been been a lot of fun. All right. So before we go, I do want to alert uh, listeners to um, a new publication that's just out this, I, I think, just this last month. Sure. Uh, the title of the book is Power and Subversion in Game of Thrones, Critical Essays on the HBO Series. Uh, it is edited by Keith Kelly and uh, published by McFarlane and Company, available on Amazon. Uh, I write a, a, a chapter in this book. Uh, the ch- chapter title is "Subversion or Reinforcement: Patriarchy and Masculinity in Game of Thrones." Right. And I look at a number of different characters in the sort of the uh, masculinity, uh, you know, including some traditional characters that one might expect, but also some characters such as uh, uh, Tywin Lannister and uh, Brienne of Tarth. Uh, and, you okay. know, look at a, a bunch of different sort of uh, a whole constellation of uh, aspects of uh, gender and sexuality. And uh, um, it's uh, available uh, in several different formats. And- yeah, this is a Mc- this is a McFarland publication, but of course you can get it on Amazon as well. And our listeners will probably be interested to know that um, friend of the program, Jan Doolittle Wilson, writes a chapter on disability. In this. Absolutely. Well worth checking that out. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love.
You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. I think that a, a lot can be made up if you have a talking bird. Ah. Like you could be a moral monster, but if you have a talking bird that just perches on your shoulder. Yeah. I think it's a combination, right? I don't think it's enough to be talking. I think it's got a little side to side head bob that they can do. Yeah. The, That's the my, little favorite dance. Part, my favorite part of parrots. Talking's parrots, fine. Parrots and pirates. Yeah, exactly. The thing about parrots is like, yeah, they can talk, but they're just kind of repeating sounds. It's that little dance that they do, that little head move. Good Lord, that is intoxicating. <laughs> and then, are there any questions you'd like to ask me before we get going? Yeah, I want to know um, when did you start hating the Targaryens. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it sounds like we're already uh, we're already there. Yeah. I you know what? I feel like I hated the Targaryens when I realized that they were coded as highfalutin colonists. I feel like mm-hmm. the way that Martin codes them is that they are the colonists. They conquer. They go into other people's lands. They act like apex predators. They treat everyone else like a lower species. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I maybe I just don't have a lot of great experience with blondes in my life. Because <laughs> um, honestly, I don't even like Daenerys that much, but I didn't start thinking she was annoying until <laughs> all she did was list all of her titles all the time. <laughs> well, I think that this is probably part of it. I think part of our dispute has to do with whether or not Targaryens generally should not be trusted or whether there are sort of a few good Targaryens hanging around. Yeah, I and... mean, I don't think that you can make such a blanket statement. (laughs) Yeah, I think I can, though. I think the way that I'm supposed to be reading these folks is that they're villains. In general, they're they're villains. And even though Danny's kind of coded as sort of like 
someone who you're rooting for because well, she's, she's also a child. She's a child. She's she's sold into you know a marriage that she didn't choose for herself. She's always in a one down position. Mm-hmm. All of those reasons are reasons to root for Danny, right? Mm-hmm. Do you root for Danny generally? Um, for the most part, I mean, I want her to get the hell out of Marine and do something (laughs) interesting. Um, but yeah, like I root for her freeing the Unsullied and, you know, because I'm not, I know George is a pacifist, but like, I think there are certain things worth fighting for, like abolishing slavery <laughs> sure yeah, yeah yeah and i think no no there's no question about that i think that like i think that danny's initial inclination is for conquest mm-hmm. and i think that she views the iron throne as her birthright and she's going to go to conquest and i think that this business about freeing slaves is kind of like a side project and it almost gives her the justification to conquer marine it's like oh all right i'm gonna try i'm gonna try out my conquest muscles here and i'm going to call it freedom i don't know if that's her primary motivation I, i don't know because i think that when i mean whatever she's doing in marine at this point it's like please stop um but when she first goes to ask for i think she's genuinely horrified by what she sees in here no there's no doubt about that and she decides like i'm not i'm not gonna just buy these people and Mm -hmm. let these people murder more babies Mm -hmm. and drown puppies and make more unsullied like i think that that comes from an actual place not like astapor belongs to me you know, and I can see how Danny would start to buy her own press because if I walked into a fire and didn't get burnt and came out with three dragons, like I might think I was special. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very well said. And I yeah. do think that Martin will oftentimes give us someone who has bad motives but will end up doing a good thing. Mm hmm. And I think that sometimes Martin will give us someone who sort of is coded as heroic, but it will end up doing something very selfish. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like maybe the jury's still out on Danny. I do feel like if if her arc winds to a spot where I feel like her her arc is redeemed in, in some way, I feel like, yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't think it's going to happen. I feel like. No, I mean, I don't disagree. I think that she probably will end up doing something. I don't like the way they did it in the show because she just won. Um, But in the books, she's already pretty paranoid. Yeah, yeah. By the time we see her, she's she's fixating on who could be the betrayer. Like uh-huh. who, what these betrayals are going to be. She's fixated on that. She's always worrying about mm-hmm. that. So I think we're seeing that happening. It's just not happening over the course of four episodes. And then all of a sudden she's methodically burning That's King's right. Landing street by street after a surrender. 
Totally true. All right, so let's imagine a situation where Martin wants to create this turn over the course of a book rather than like over the course of four episodes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it might turn out something along the lines of what I suggested with these dragon rules. I think that there might be something like the more she's bonded to a grown-up creature of conquest, the more she'll be influenced by the dragon, and then maybe that turns her, like, she becomes kind of hell-bent toward conquest. And I'm wondering if that's the kind of thing that's being foreshadowed in House of the Dragon. But it sounds like you are not on, not fully on board with no. This idea. So I binge-watched the season again over this weekend, so thank you for giving me an excuse to do that. Okay, good. Um, and there were a couple of things that I wanted to pay particular attention to. Uh-huh. Um, I don't really have a problem with rule number one, which is that dragons are beasts of war and conquest all right i mean it's at least well established that that's what humans use them for but i mean every time we see vagar not being ridden she's literally taking a nap on a beach so, <laughs> so yeah. i think yeah they, I, like, mean, they... I don't think that they're, i don't think they're always everyone yeah, needs a nap like, yeah yeah i think that they're like their default mode isn't necessarily i'm gonna burn everything i think it's also like just basic <laughs> yeah, but, but that's when they're being most authentically themselves i would i would say i mean I, and maybe you do maybe there is a dragon from here you know, every now and again you'll find a dragon who just wants to smell daisies um i'm not <laughs> sure i'm not sure about that but all right so we we almost agree on rule number one okay mm-hmm. yeah um Number two, if you're bonded to a dragon, the more warlike your command, the more likely the dragon to obey. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have enough evidence for this because we really only see them being issued warlike commands, but like we never see Danny like on Drogon doing anything other than. Well, okay, let me throw a, a counterexample at you. So, when Danny, actually, the last we leave Danny, she's been carried away from the pits. Drogon has taken her out to the middle of nowhere. And mm. she's trying to command Drogon to take her home. And he won't well, do it. And then he tries to command her, like, go get us food. He won't do that. He's taking a nap. They, he, they take their naps really He won't do anything. There. In fact, what she says <laughs> I is... I think he got hurt. He, what she says is, he'll only take me closer to Dragonstone. And so there's some... Like, she understands that he thinks of... Like, he has a, some kind of weird magical call to Dragonstone. And yeah, so she I, so she's not going to get him to take her back... She's not going to get him to take her back to Marine. But then she does. She doesn't. She she's in the she's in the middle of nowhere. Well, she does, she does. on foot. <laughs> in the show, in the, yeah, but I think that the showrunners didn't know how to 
round that into shape because at at the end of the books, really what we have is we have this problem with how do you get a dragon to bend to your will? Is there going to be a magical horn? Is there going to be what's going to, what's it going to take? I think Danny's dragons are also different because weirdly they're all kind of emotionally bound to her because you know, blood magic babies. They she actually breastfed them, which I always forget. And then when I'm rereading, I'm like, oh god. Yeah, right. Um, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, they can't feel very good. Yeah, the three of them are all pretty in tune with how she's feeling, and they hiss and throw little sparks at people mm-hmm, if they're pissing mm-hmm. her off. Um, and I guess if they're her children sometimes you just have to ignore mom if she's being really really boring and marine <laughs> all right okay so you you've got you come up with a couple counterexamples uh for me that of dragon riders that don't Who present never... as violent yes so king anies the first i think the correct pronunciation is anus but i'm not gonna say that over and over again he rode quicksilver uh and he was universally seen as weak. There were at least four uprisings throughout the kingdoms, like all occurring around the same time. And mm-hmm. he did not take Quicksilver out there. Quicksilver didn't really do anything. He was literally like to his small council, like guys like i like the small folk like me right like why don't they just like why don't these rebels just come talk to me about their grievances i don't get it this is the son of the conqueror (laughs) and uh and yeah so he didn't i actually don't think he even took his dragon on royal progresses but the book says that quicksilver was his favorite mount Okay, so does this not? This is I, I really like this. I love I love examples. I think that you have a really strong case here. But th- does this not have? Doesn't it sound a little bit like Anus is choosing not to ride his dragon, and maybe he doesn't have the strongest connection with this dragon? Well, I'm saying that the dragon, the fact that he rides the dragon, he's bound to the dragon. It's not making him violent. At all. Well, I would say that, okay, number one, I think it, this is a good case. I think you're making a good case. Because mm-hmm. these examples are are all we have to, to work with. Mm-hmm. I will say that maybe we have an example here with Anus. Number one, no wonder everyone views him as weak. He's yes. his, 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 his name, name is, is Anus. actually Anus. Yes. So, so I feel like... Here's a guy who's choosing not to ride his dragon. So that that to me but is he telling. He does ride his dragon. He just flies around for funsies. All right, it's his a... favorite mount. <laughs> he's he's choosing he's choosing not to do dragonish things. He's choosing not to ride his dragon to war. I think Which that is why maybe a better example is Jaharis. Okay, who does use Vermithor to flex? Yes, he does. But never does he ever use it in a battle on a person to burn down anything. And he was the rider of Vermithor, the third biggest and baddest dragon after Valerian. 
and Vagar, uh, good queen Alisane. She was also a dragon rider. She rode Silverwing. She is uh, the reason that they put an end to the the rite of the first night where lords could just rape maidens on their wedding nights for some reason. She is the reason that they put aqueducts for clean water into King's Landing because she, when Jaehaerys and his council said it was they balked at the cost. She brought them a pitcher of river water and was like, drink it. And they wouldn't. So they had to relent. Um, she had her woman's councils. She did a lot of good for the small folk. She met with the small folk in person. And she also never burned anybody, never became yeah, violent. You're right. The best example yet. Best example yet. Mm-hmm. I would say. That going back to rule number one, these are creatures of war and conquest. I feel with Vermithor, his master or his writer or whatever we want to call him, these are absolutely acts of conquest. He's not actually burning stuff down, but he (laughs) he is conquering the kingdom. He's solidifying his power throughout the realm establishing himself as an apex predator Mm -hmm. to me that feels like yes these are creatures of war they're creatures of conquest and conquest can take a many many shapes now i feel like this is probably my weakest argument Mm -hmm. and so i i absolutely appreciate have like everybody that isn't damon and amen we have rainies lanor Lena, um, Rhaenyra, who all ride dragons, Jace, Luke. Um, and I did actually notice something very interesting in that last scene that I didn't pick up on the first time I watched it was that when, so I still stand by my theory that Vagar, you know, is still an auto- semi-autonomous creature. They're not warging. And this little fuckface dragon blows fire in her face. Yeah, right. And that clearly pisses her off. Um, but Luke, after that, tells Arax to serve him in High Valyrian. And Arax does stop and flies above the clouds. Amond starts freaking the fuck out and saying "serve me," but in the common tongue, but not in the High Valyrian. So you not think that there's something Valyrian. about the the command? There might be something about the language. Also, the fact that Amond, that Luke is able to kind of keep it together, and Amond is like freaking out because he's riding riding a giant dragon mm-hmm, that is just mm-hmm. angry as hell. Mm-hmm. So. That was something I picked up on that I thought was might be interesting. Yeah, I've heard like, people say that. I've heard people make this argument. I do wonder though. But also, like, I think that there's something to that. I do feel like there there is something to the psychic connection. No, definitely, because before that moment, he he's speaking High Valyrian, flying around, chasing Luke, demanding his eye. Uh-huh, he's clear, uh-huh. he's clearly not happy. Like, what precedes the chomp? is an act of violence. <laughs> he is physically threatening and torturing his nephew. Like, 
This is not like they're not doing it. They're not not playing tag. (laughs) Not the best. That's no. There's no question about that. I do feel like, um, I mean, returning to my my original idea, and I think I think I'm still happy to stick with it. I feel like these dragons can be fickle. I feel like they might just do a loop de loo if you ask them, but they might not. The thing that they will absolutely always do is the thing that is in their nature, and that is to attack. But I will always obey a a command to attack. I have an interesting rebuttal of that, too. Okay. Because Vagar, I paid a lot of attention to Vagar specifically because we actually know multiple writers of Vagar. Mm -hmm. Sure. Lena has to beg Vagar to Dracarys her. Yeah, she she, she says Dracarys at least eight times, and it's not. And Vagar's like, "What? No!" And then it's not until she gives Vagar this very emotional look, and then closes her eyes and does the open arms, "I'm ready, take me," mm-hmm. that Vagar finally relents. If they absolutely will always follow these warlike commands from their rider. Vagar would have been like, that's what you get. You woke me up from my beach nap. <laughs> no, no, no. I would say Vagar absolutely decarses her. She gives a command. She has to give us a few times, but she, this dragon absolutely follows the command. Only when she knows that she really, really means it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that, we agree. On that, we agree. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. <laughs>